Megan McCain has entered the chat. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. We have some very exciting news. I was just told by uh, you, Miranda, that right this second, as we're taping, we are number three on Apple in news podcasts and number 17 in podcasts overall. Our little engine that could seems to be doing like it's pretty okay right now. I'm honestly just so glad we're not a huge failure. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your hard work. Miranda, are you excited? I just, I can't believe it. I feel like it's, a dream or a trick I don't like I just keep looking at it and like <laughs> waiting for someone to be like oh you guys just dropped your bottom down <laughs> I mean we got to keep it going now but honestly just people listening and caring and um, you know we came into this space wanting to do something a little different we want to talk about news and everything in our chats and culture and everything but you know we want to be respectful and there's no yelling unless there's something really insane that happens and uh, no one is ever going to leave our podcast having a bad experience which is just I think a little bit of a vibe shift uh, from everything out there right now. So I'm very, very, very grateful. So thank you. Thank Kara. Thank Matt, our engineer in here, and everyone who is uh, listening and caring. It's a wonderful feeling. I think we're people can tell we're having a good time. We're and, having a good time. Uh, Except when you have COVID like great. you do now. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. COVID. It's horrible. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. So we want to talk about today's episode. We have uh, my friend Lori Blackford, who is an Emmy Award winning political journalist and most recently the producer of the Showtime political documentary series, The Circus. She's also just a dear friend of mine. And I thought we'd bring some of one of the things I'm chatting with her on our chats to the show all about the upcoming Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary and some good gossip uh, on Capitol Hill. And then we have Tina Nguyen, who is the national correspondent at Puck News and author of her new book, The MAGA Diary. My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out, her time going into working at the Daily Caller, being in sort of Tucker Carlson Magaland, and then coming out and being a more um, neutral porter. It's a great interview. And then, as promised, we also have my friend Carlos King, who, um, you know, really needs no introduction. He hosts his own podcast, Reality with the King. Uh, he is the king of reality television. Look, we have to talk about Salt Lake City. I just have to. There's too much going on, and we wanted to fit it in having Carlos on today. So he is is coming on to help us sift through just some of the most dramatic moments of all of reality TV history. And we're just really excited to share it with you. So thank you again, everyone's listening. Miranda, I hope you feel better. Let's get started. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. I am friends with this next guest. She is an Emmy Award winning political journalist and most recently uh, the producer of the Showtime political documentary series, The Circus. My friend Lori Blackford. Lori, thank you so much for coming on. This is one of those times where I just wanted to talk to someone who you're in my chats every day. So I wanted to talk to someone on air to enter the chat on air that I do off air. Does that make sense? <laughs> so yes, I'm very happy to have you on. So, I don't know if we can bring all of our off air chats on no. air though. Not everything yeah. off air is going to be yeah. on air. Yeah. Uh, certainly okay, not. Fine. But um, okay. but our political and news chats. Uh, and I want to say we have been friends for like forever. I was trying to think it's like, I think it's like almost 20 years. I've been friends with you a really <gasps> long time. I know I was 22 when I met you and I'm 39. Oh my God. I know. You look 22 still and no, I, I do don't. not. But I am you so did. happy to be talking to you on air because I, you know, we're friends personally, but I also just always love your take on politics and your take on culture because I think it's very fair and you have a lot of 
uh, history and background in the political space. It's really interesting. Um, you originally worked in politics for the George H.W. Bush campaign, so the original first George Bush. Um, Correct. That was my first campaign right out of college. Did it make you love politics? Can you tell me a little bit about that campaign? It did make me love politics. I mean, I loved politics before because I found it interesting. I really loved politics then because I really loved George Herbert Walker Bush. I thought he was the epitome of what a politician should be. And I know a lot of people would criticize him because he was around for so long. CIA was at the CIA. He was a congressman, all of those things. And people feel like, you know, there's nothing good about being a career politician. But what I mean is I felt like he understood the mission that it was that he had a responsibility to make life better for everybody in the US and in the world. And he took that seriously. And that made me love him that 92 reelect, which was the one I worked on, was, you know, he was running against Bill Clinton, who had been a flip-flopper on multiple issues. You know, he was pro-choice. He was pro-life. He was, you know, all of these things, not to mention his allegations of infidelity and up against this incredibly decent, wholesome person. And you really do think about what's at stake and who our leaders are and why it's so important that the person who sits in that chair is really of great character and has a real focus and determination and drive to do what's right. That's not to say Bill Clinton, you know, didn't have great things about his presidency. I want to go to the now, uh, because again, this is like what we talk about in our chats all the time. So um, anyone who doesn't know who Ann Seltzer is, she and her partners at the Wayne Register are basically the only Iowa pollsters that matter. And she is known as sort of the, you know, tea leaf reader of uh, Iowa politics. And we have the caucus coming up a mere seven days away. Um, right now, things are not looking great for DeSantis or Nikki Haley. It looks like Trump is still going to take it all away and it's not really going to matter. Ron DeSantis had to come out publicly and dismiss reports that he would drop out of the presidential race if he didn't win Iowa. Um, uh, but then if he doesn't win Iowa, where what is his path forward to New Hampshire and South Carolina? And I have to ask um, maybe a disrespectful question to Iowans. I do not mean any disrespect to Iowans at all because I love Iowa and I love Iowans. But does the Iowa caucus matter? Because I was going back in my little time machine and um, there are very few candidates who have won the Iowa caucus that went on to uh, win the presidency or even become the nominee of the party. Uh, people like Ted Cruz, people like Mike Huckabee, uh, people like Rick Santorum. These are people who are notable in the sort of right wing religious space, not so much uh, in the mainstream running for president space. I agree with you about Anne dying to, you know, see what the results of that poll are Saturday night when they're released, I think, what, midnight? It's East coming up. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. So looking forward to seeing that. I don't think Iowa matters as much anymore as it used to for exactly what you the reasons that you've said. But also, too, they, they haven't again. I'm with you. I love Iowans great state. I was just, we were reliving today in 2020 on the circus, spending two weeks before the caucuses in Iowa. I felt like I lived there. They're good people, but they can't quite get it right on the Republican side and on the Democratic side to the point that the Democrats aren't even doing the Iowa caucus first, which is what they've always done. Um, I don't know that I think, you know, DeSantis did something that 
only losing candidates in Iowa have done in the past, which is he moved his entire operation to Iowa and flooded it with money about what, two months ago, three months ago. It's never a winning proposition. Mm -hmm. And you know, you can't really, nothing is final until, you know, anything is possible until, you know, the very last minute. Having said that, I don't think he can spend as much money as he has spent in Iowa and spend as much time there. I was looking today, I mean, Trump has visited, what, 19 times, DeSantis has been there 57 times and 90 some odd counties. I don't know that you can spend that much time and that much money and lose a state and still be a viable candidate. Having said that, I don't think he'll drop out before New Hampshire, which is only a week away after Iowa. He'll give it a go then. But I think if he comes in third in New Hampshire, which is what it's looking likely, he'll have to drop out. There's nowhere for him to go after that. So people that maybe don't follow politics as closely as you and I do, um, New Hampshire has always been first in the nation until recently where Democrats just – I sort of obsequiously decided that they were it was no longer going to be first in the nation. Um, I think that is disrespectful. I think it's a misstep. And I think it's quite frankly, chicken shit to pull out of New Hampshire just because your candidate is unpopular uh, there for people that want a time machine. Uh, President Biden did not win New Hampshire in 2020. Um, Nikki Haley right now is within the margin of error. Uh, and mm-hmm. she's around four points against President Trump, depending on which uh, poll you read, uh, which, again, as we all know, margin of error is five points up or down. So in theory, she could be one point up or six points down. Um, is it a pipe dream for me that she could actually win and pull this off if she somehow wins New Hampshire and gets enough momentum going into South Carolina? I believe that we actually have a race here. Um, do you think that's something that is just sort of like fantasy football, Lori, or do you think it's possible? No, I, again, I think anything is possible. I think she's done well in New Hampshire. I was in New Hampshire in the fall when she and went to a couple of her events. She's very good at retail politics. And Megan, you more than anybody know, New Hampshire's, they, what do you call them? New, Ham, New, New Hampshireites. Hampshire <laughs> yeah. Couldn't remember the word. <laughs> Love their retail politics. You know, all politics is local. You could literally go door to door and you shake every hand. And she's really, really good at it. She's made a couple of blunders in the past couple of weeks, but... I think she's really good at it. And I don't think anything is outside the realm of possibility. I look, I still think it's Trump's election or, you know, nomination, primary nomination to lose, unfortunately. But I think you're right. If she does do well, even if she doesn't win, but does really, really, really well up until the line in New Hampshire, which gives them momentum going into South Carolina, I, you know, I think that still makes her a viable candidate. I love the state of New Hampshire because I think the people who populate it take their role as New Hampshireites so seriously and their role as choosing the first in the nation. Um, they they are very politically and civically active. They go to town halls. They meet candidates. There was right. a joke uh, that I have heard a long time ago that my dad used to tell that um, uh, people would say, uh, a guy walked into a barbershop and he said, am I voting for you? Are you going to vote for me? He said, I don't know. I've only met you twice. Um, and yeah, that is someone funny. in New Hampshire yeah. that, you know, because they meet so many candidates. And I also think New Hampshire always has a little bit of magic in it um, that they're really going to decide and they're not going to let the country or the media mm-hmm. tell them who they pick. So that's that's why I personally think that it still could be Nikki Haley's. And they also yeah. like um, coming from the left. They like a, you know, a punch that you don't see coming. So that's right. why I think Nikki Haley could win and pull it off. Um, yeah. Again, we're not talking about DeSantis, Lori. Um, I would love it. We're also not talking about Chris Christie, who I think this is like the weirdest vanity 
run for president. He's accomplishing nothing. He's taking votes away from Nikki Haley because anyone that's going to vote for Chris Christie is more likely to vote for Nikki Haley than President Trump, obviously. Right. Um, why the hell is he staying in the race right now? You know, it's interesting. I The the one who might actually, and, and right now he's polling, what, third in New Hampshire? Oh, so, I think it's even, I, actually, I think it's like fourth or fifth. Is it, it's pretty oh, really? low. I thought yeah. he was below. He's behind Vivek. He behind, really? Yes. What did I look at today then? I may have looked at something uh, wrong then, but I was actually thinking he was pulling higher than that. But I know he's pulling polling, excuse me, low in Iowa, and I don't know that I don't that it's not possible that after Iowa, if he does really as badly as he thinks, or as we all think he's going to do, that he'll pull out after that and then put his money behind um, behind Nikki Haley. The interesting thing, again, back to New Hampshireites, all politics is local. They go door to door, they shake every hand. The only person in this race who is absolutely the worst at retail politics is Ron DeSantis. He's he really doesn't bad. like other people. He doesn't like to talk to other people. He does not know how to glad handle. He doesn't know how to do any of that. And that, to your point, is what you need more than anything in New Hampshire. You have to be able to literally shake every hand and really connect. And, you know, people get authenticity. They see that. They sense it. It doesn't matter how good of an actor you are. They sense the authenticity. So it doesn't matter. He He's not really capable of doing it. And even if he could, it would come across as so inauthentic as it has been. Um, so anyway, I would I would not count out that that Chris Christie won't um, drop out after Iowa. It's a oh, I'm sorry. That he uh, might my producer just did told me, um, according to New Hampshire Real Clear Politics Average, Trump is 46.3. Haley is 24.8. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Christie is 10.5. You were right. So he is higher than I thought. But that's 10 fucking points that could go to Haley yeah. instead of Trump, yeah. dude. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> it's true. And, and and again, because he's doing so well in New Hampshire, he might think he can pull it out. But I don't know. I Again, to, I think to your point, it is a little bit of a vanity project for him. And I think it's more that he was running the campaign of it should be anybody but Donald Trump and maybe Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy. But mm-hmm. um, I think that's what his campaign is based on. So maybe he'll feel like he's made his point in Iowa and going into New Hampshire and then you know, he'll he'll drop out. I hope that it's not just all Trump's to win and that the inevitability of him is just there and this doesn't matter. I hope we're not all just doing kabuki theater. I hope the voters of New Hampshire and Iowa actually matter, I guess, TBD. Um, But I wouldn't set my hearts on uh, what happens in Iowa necessarily dictating because Iowa and New Hampshire are always so different. There's such different states, such different people, such different interests, such different priorities. And, you know, I, I really like, you know, sort of implore prudence, I guess, for things going forward. And that's to myself as well, to stay the course. Um, can we yeah. switch to President Biden? So we were talking about this also in our chat offline, that yeah. it's fascinating that South Carolina Democrat, um, James Congressman James Clyburn, who was an absolute just legend in South Carolina, yeah. and he was integral to President Biden winning in 2020. Agreed. He recently said that he is worried that Biden is, quote, not breaking through the MAGA wall in order to get people to tell them uh, what he has done as president and that this is ultimately impacting the race. Um, No offense to Congressman Clyburn, because like I said, I have the utmost respect for him. He really is just an absolute legend and he's a Democrat, but I have so much respect for him. But my uh, response to James Clyburn is if you're explaining, you're losing. Uh, Biden not breaking through the MAGA wall uh, and telling the American public what he hasn't done as president is his fault. Uh, Do you agree with Congressman Clyburn? And why do you think that President Biden isn't resonating his quote accomplishments in office? You know, it's interesting because 
Well, a couple of things. Uh, Erica Haynes of the 19th guest hosted a couple of episodes on the circus. And she actually said this, that despite all the, you know, the touting of the accomplishments of the Biden administration in the past three and a half years, it's not trickling down. Yes, fewer people are unemployed, you know, wages are going up, but unfortunately inflation hasn't come down enough. And so people aren't feeling, they're not feeling how grand the Biden administration thinks people should be feeling. They're they're not seeing that in their pocketbooks. They're not seeing it in their paychecks. They're not seeing it when they go to the grocery store, that groceries are cheaper. They're not feeling any of that. And so Biden and his administration saying it over and over again doesn't really make it so. The other thing I think, and this is something that the Biden that the Biden campaign announced this weekend, you know, their whole plan for defeating Trump is to remind them, remind people of the January 6th insurrection. And again, to your point, if you're not telling me, regardless of Donald Trump, if you're not telling me why I should vote for you, and simply saying, look what happened on January 6th, that that hasn't really stuck with Trump, oddly enough. And maybe Jack Smith this spring, if that trial happens, will be, you know, much smarter than everybody else and be able to connect the dots and connect Trump to that. But it hasn't been something thus far that has really connected with, you know, that that has really stuck on Trump. Because I think a lot of people think our democracy is safe. And we'll always be safe because mm-hmm. we are the greatest country in the world. And it's going to take more than, you know, one man or a group of 20 people breaking into the Capitol to destroy our democracy. And Biden, you know, basically launching his whole campaign on reminding people of January 6th is not exact, is not a winning strategy as far as I'm concerned. I don't think it's a winning. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's like yeah. the idea that people are going to just think about January 6th every second right. before they get into a voting booth. To me, that says that you are you know, wealthy enough and privileged enough and don't have like quite real world problems enough that that's the big issue for you. I think it's exactly. pretty reductive uh, to right. think all Americans are going to be like that. I do want to ask you, though, um, it's not just James Clyburn that's having concerns. It's actually President Obama. Uh, this right. comes days after Washington Post reported that President Obama has raised questions about the, quote, structure of Biden's reelection campaign and has discussed the matter with Biden directly. That's a pretty big leak to the Washington Post. Of course, it came from a, quote, close source. It wasn't President right. Obama directly. Uh, I President Obama is many things that I don't like. He, he does know how to win elections. Yeah. Why aren't they listening to President Obama? Well, I think it's the same thing that happens in every White House. And I think there are some Obama people that work for President Biden. But I think it's also too, you know, oh, it's been seven years since you were in office. You don't know what it's like. You don't remember. It is a little bit of that. Okay, yeah, fine, whatever. It's like your it's like your mother telling you you should really go to you know you're a grown adult you've lived out of the house but your mother is telling you you know you shouldn't stay out that late you should <laughs> eat your vegetables it's i think it's a little bit of that like okay thanks <laughs> that is it. sure we gotcha right so yeah. i do think it's a little bit of that i think it's a little bit of like thanks dude you haven't been around for 8 years we've all lived we lived through 4 years of trump we lived through defeating trump in 20 while you were like celebrating your 60th birthday on martha's vineyard good luck with that I mean, that that might be a little unfair of me, but I think that that's probably part of it, which is nobody wants the guy who was before them and who did it so successfully to come and tell them what they're doing wrong, whether he's right or not. I feel like you and I have conversations sometimes where I'm like, you and I are basically like 
building a giant fire and putting giant smoke signals out to everyone on the left being like, you are getting Trump reelected. You're getting Trump reelected. Yeah. X, Y, and Z is getting Trump reelected. Talking about why January 6th should be more more important than people not being able to pay for food is getting Trump reelected. Trying to right. take him off the ballot is getting Trump reelected because right. you're just Agree. feeding into all these conspiracies. Why don't Democrats listen? It is the $64,000 question. <laughs> I'm constantly baffled at this. I know. Please, people, they, the Republicans want you to indict him one more time about yes. something else. Are you kidding me? Yes. You impeached him three times. None of this matters. Stop already. It's ridiculous. I know. I constantly, I've constantly marvel at it. It is that thing. This is going to be a terrible story, and, and hopefully my mother will not listen. But my mother <laughs> always says about my – I'm an older sibling who's a hot mess. And my mother's forever like, I just think one day she's just going to figure it out. And I'm like, good luck with that. Uh-huh. They yeah. never are going to. Yeah. Stop already. But at what point do they – again, because I really feel like if, if you said, Megan, like gun to your head – Trump and against Biden right now, right the second who wins. I think it's Trump all day, every day. Oh yeah, I and, agree. And I just Completely. don't understand. And you know, to any Democrat listening who's in, in any position of influence, why aren't you more scared? Because I don't want Trump to get reelected. I mean, I don't want Biden to get reelected. I want Trump to get reelected. And I, I don't know where the hell that leaves me, except writing in again, again, which sucks. I'm so sick of writing in and not believing in a candidate. But I believe candidates have to earn my vote um i i just it feels so hopeless and it feels so dark and it feels so just like we have these like two aging octogenarians who are both wildly out of touch with the american public that are going to be president but you know what's so fascinating to me it's so interesting to me because again we all talk about trump we can't have another trump we can't have another trump and and i hear this from a lot of democrats and yes fine we can have another trump i agree with you we shouldn't be having another Biden. And I read story after story after, you know, anonymous Democratic sources and some not so anonymous. You know, I think David Axelrod has said this, who express concern about Biden's age, his mental capabilities, his physical capabilities, the idea that, you know, it will be a Trump victory if, you know, if, if it turns out the way everybody is assuming it's going to. And yet, Nobody will say this to Joe Biden. And everybody says, oh, you know, the only one who can say this to him is Jill. You know what? Then don't come crying to me. Again, I felt this way in 20 when, you know, people talk about Trump and the Republicans and how they've lost their own minds. And I thought and I would say you had how many Democratic candidates were there? 15, 16, an openly gay candidate who was married, an Mm -hmm. Asian-American three women, four women, and you still picked the 76-year-old white man? Don't Mm -hmm. talk to me about what's wrong with the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Figure it out. And there is no, and of course, President Biden is is technically the leader of the Democratic Party, but there really isn't anybody other than Barack Obama and maybe Bill Clinton. But again, I don't think anybody is going to listen to either one of them who are capable of saying, you can't do this. You cannot do this. You cannot. It is too tough of a job. You cannot do this. You must step aside for the next generation of Democratic leaders. It's weird that they that I think it's weird that he won't step down for the good of the party and for the good of for their party and for the good of the country. He is convinced. 
Yes. It's because he's convinced he's the only person who can beat Trump. He did it before. He's convinced he'll do he, it again. I think he's, he's the only not, one that can lose to Trump, man. He I, didn't I, know his own secretary of defense was in the hospital and intensive care and MIA. Okay, so can we get like, to this topic? Because we got to get to this topic. Seriously. Okay. So for people that don't know, over the weekend, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, and this is a true story. This is real. Okay. He was in the hospital in the ICU for almost a week. And no one, including the president, knew. This is one of the weirder stories to come out. Yeah. What is going on? What was he doing? Like, how can you be in the ICU for four days and you are literally the secretary of defense when a war is going on between Israel and Hamas and you don't, you, you are, you know, encompass mentis. How the right. hell does this happen? Yeah. His deputy secretary didn't even know she was on holiday in Costa Rica. Uh, she was on holiday in Costa Rica and she didn't know that he was when she was when she assumed his responsibilities. She didn't know it was because he was in the hospital in ICU. Uh, I don't know how that happens. I mean, I read a column today out of the free press. I think it was Oliver Weissman who said, I think I could be quoting I, I, attributing this to the wrong person, but who said either he really is that private, as people say, Lloyd Austin, incredibly private, would think, you, you don't know, get like, to be oh, that I'm private when the secretary totally agree. Yeah, Either he's really being that private or somebody is lying. And I'm not sure which one it is, in all honesty. But to your point, like you're, you're the secretary of defense. You, you have somebody has to know and the White House has to know. You have to know where the SecDef is at all times. But Joe Biden doesn't even know where his secretary of defense is, that he's even sick and in the hospital. Even if he's in there having an elective procedure, you might want to leave somebody a message. But dude, if he was having a little Botox done, they should know. You know, I, know. I mean, like, they're, I like we should know. But there's a part of me when I, I was really angry when I first read this story and um, our friend Yashara Lee broke it, or at least he broke it on, on my Twitter when I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so angry because there's this there's this overwhelming feeling that I now have that the health of our leaders and the people who are elected to office and putting in positions of power they no longer feel like it's my business to know, meaning like Mitch right. McConnell, you know, lo- right. like, you know, faint, it's stopping being able to talk in the middle of a press conference, not once, but twice. Diane Feinstein literally dying right. on the Senate right. floor. Obviously, everything going on with President Biden. There's this feeling I get with just, you know, my feeling from being a political observer that these people just don't feel like it's the American public's business to know how their health is. I think that's bullshit. I think if you can't function physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, you have to be honest to the American public about it. And honestly, props all day, every day to um, uh, Senator Fetterman for being open and honest about his health when he needed to be. Right. I appreciate that because at least he was giving clarity to his constituents. Right. Why right. do you think we're in this place where a lot of leaders feel like they don't have to have to tell us? You know, I mean, I think I do think part of it started in 16 when Trump refused to, you know, every presidential yes, candidate with has that weirdo released, doctor. Right. Has released <laughs> their medical files to show where, you know, where, Remember where the they doctor. are right there. Yeah, exactly. The doctor was like, die? he I was like, he was the healthiest died. man that's ever lived yeah. in America ever. <laughs> right. But like refused. I mean, I do think every single candidate who's been running for president has like released their medical records of their latest, you know, physical, how they are, whatever, all of those things. And Trump refusing to do so. I think, you know, I hate to blame Trump for everything, but I think you you do that and this is what you get. You get the sense of it's really nobody's responsibility or, or no, it's nobody's business. And the reality is it is our business. And we have a government built on transparency. You know, how do we know that? I mean, I feel like this is like the out of the movie Dave. 
you know, where where the president is actually in a coma in a bunker in the White House and they bring in the guy who does impersonations of him because they don't want to tell anybody because they don't like the vice president. Like, no, that's that's not this is not a movie. This is not how we operate. This is real life. That's a great segue to my next topic. Speaking of people, nobody liking (laughs) the vice president. You just teed that up for me. Thank you. Really just set that right down. I'm picking it right up right now, Lori. Um, so it came out over the weekend that Kamala Harris actually has a worse uh, approval rating with black voters than President Biden, which is really quite defeat given that she is a woman of color yeah. herself and she was chosen, I, I think, with the conduit in no small part because she was a black woman and they thought that she would probably yeah. bring, um, you know, black voters with her. Uh, that is ru- that is rough. Uh, that is rough. Last night when I was wa- half watching the Golden Globes, uh, a friend of mine was texting me gaffes of Kamala to make yeah. me laugh. And I got to tell you, there's some really sweet ones. Uh, Google the passage of time and time passing her little like sonnet about the passage oh, of yeah. time. She sounds like a stoner and like a 19 year old stoner in college <laughs> who's just like high at 3 a.m. I she makes me so uncomfortable. Our vice president, I don't like watching her. I don't like listening to her. Again, I don't know what it is. She's just a really uncomfortable person. I don't like her for that reason just because she seems like really unserious. I'm going to say something that's really messed up. So please forgive me, you and some of our women listening. If anything, Vice President Harris has proven to me that maybe like a woman can't be vice president. <laughs> like I actually think she's like setting feminism back <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> Why is it that black voters and people like me have such a strong adverse reaction to her? Cause I have a very strong adverse reaction to her and it's not because of sexism. I, I really, there's so many fe- female politicians I love and respect. I'll be more yeah. than happy with them being president on the left as well. Elizabeth Warren, I'd be much more comfortable in that position yeah. of power than her. And she's like right. a socialist. So what do you think? You know, it's funny. You t- give us talking about her little, her little poem makes me think of George W. Was it George W. Bush who said, "A mind is a terrible thing to waste," where he was like, was reciting the. Anyway, just he had some chuckle. really good ones too that were so he had some good ones. And I read today that that Kamala is like the most memeable uh, it, politician. Some yes. of the stuff she Hilarious. says is like yeah. it's so good. I I think, in all honesty, I mean, again, I'm going to blame the white the White House for this and the Biden administration. I think. I, I don't know her personally. We I've certainly been on the road covering her. She's actually a really fun, incredibly likable person. She is. She, however, yeah, she, however, is not a great politician. That's not coming across. Yeah. No, she's actually a really fun, likable person. She's not a great politician in that she doesn't, she should have stayed. I mean, this is obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. She should have stayed the sen- senator from California. She would be much more powerful in the U.S. Senate right now than she is here. And I think part of it is she's not a great politician. She's a very likable person. She's not a great politician. And nobody has really quite known what to do with her. It is it is this this mantle of being the first woman to do it and this expectation of you're going to be amazing, but we don't really know what we want you to do because we don't want you to outshine the president. So just sit over there until we tell you what we want you to do. And we're not really sure, but we're going to give you something. It's like nobody really knows what to do with her. And she has become, and she doesn't know enough about herself as a, you know, and her core to say, no, this is who I am. You focus on that. Let me do this. This is where I can be of use to you because she isn't sure herself because again, 
as likable a person as I think she is, I don't think she's a great politician. It's interesting and you that's say a that. Problem. Sorry to interrupt you. It's interesting you say that to her as a person that I've never, I, I, I have met her once very, very briefly in like passing, but I was like, hello, nice to meet you. That's it. Um, so I had no like reaction during that time, but it's interesting you say that because I would love to see that side of her. And I, yeah, I, I've really not seen it. The one there thing, are a few of those. There, no, I'm sorry to interrupt as well, but you know, there was something that's I can't remember what it was, but there was a senator who was like, you know, put something on on Instagram or something about making a tuna sandwich, and she, it, this was years ago, might have been during the presidential, and she was like, no, I'm going to teach you how to make a tuna sandwich, and she like did it on Instagram and post. It was really funny. Like she's very she she loves to cook. You know, she can actually be very charming and very fun. And like, she's somebody you'd want to sit next to at dinner and people genuinely like her. My response to her is like, I wouldn't want to be around her because she just started laughing like what came Phoenix and the Joker at something that wasn't funny. Yeah, no, she actually is a really, I think a really lovely, um, engaging, fun person. She just has been so mishandled. Um, well, and I think partly because of her own sort of insecurity of her, who she is, because again, I don't think she's a great politician and partly because the white house hasn't really known what to do with her. To your point, she was picked because, I mean, I don't know this definitively, but I think we can pretty much all no, say, I think President you know, Biden said I'm choosing a black woman. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. I, that was why she was picked, but nobody really thought past the, and then what? I didn't understand why he didn't pick Val Demings. She was still, I think, the best choice, had a law enforcement background, right. uh, seems to understand Republicans on a different level, and just like a very strong person on television and in the media. Right. And I, lo- I really like her a lot, and I think it's his biggest political error of his yeah. his presidency is not choosing her instead of Kamala. If, if right. he wanted to be a black woman, I, I thought there were one, many many higher qualified black women with with better political experience and chops and just instincts that could yeah. have really elevated his presidency to a place where he wouldn't be pulling within the margin of error to President Trump. Yeah. So it's amazing to me that people are like, I I hate, you know, I can't stand Trump and I can't stand Biden. We sure as hell can't have Kamala. We can't. I mean, we can't, yeah. like, right. it's fascinating. Um, right. I, we only have a little bit left in time. Um, is there anything you are looking forward to? We are seven days away from the Iowa caucus. I think we're like 20 away, give or take. I don't remember. I apologize. But very soon it's in January um, to the New Hampshire primary. This is like our football Super Bowl season. I know. It's my favorite you time. Know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so funny because I was on a text chain. I have a little text chain um, group with some people from the circus. And we were actually texting today that, you know, this time four years ago, we were spending two weeks in Iowa. And we all, it just sort of all occurred to us like, my gosh, Iowa caucus is a week away. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire is eight days after that, January 23rd. And it could be all is said and done by then. Yep. On the Republican side, at least. Um, and that's really interesting to me. Really fascinating. I, re- I remember, Megan, we had this conversation a million times in 2016 when Trump was running. And how, I mean, you were, I know I said this to you every single time. Oh, he'll be out by, you know, he'll be out by New Hampshire. He'll be out by South Carolina. He'll be out by whatever the next state was. And you kept by Arizona. saying to me, bye, bye. you told me he was going to be out and he was never out. But I do think, I mean, anything is possible in the final round of Jeopardy. But I do think it's very possible that two weeks from tomorrow, we have basically a Republican nominee. And yep. that to me is 
you know, and then we're looking at what, seven months of, of, you know, and then you're you're going to Wisconsin for the RNC. I don't think I am. Ben is my husband is, but I'm not going this year. Uh, I don't think at least unless somebody sends us, but I I was really, they, you know, they were going to pick Nashville, which would have been really way better. My mother, Wisconsin, but I love Nashville. It's a party town. (laughs) Um, Um, Very true. I just want to thank you so much for coming on. I love you. You're such a astute political mind. Obviously, love your work, but we're good friends well, you're too. Very sweet. And you are my one of my favorite chats. I talk to you all day, every day about politics and everything. I'm sorry we didn't get to the Golden Globes, but it really wasn't that interesting last oh, night. My gosh, no! But just what what was interesting was what didn't happen. What we talked about earlier today. My throat didn't win shit. Look, I got so much crap over Christmas for saying I hated that movie and I couldn't sit through it. It didn't win anything. I'm just saying. Not the only. And then I saw a New York Post article that was talking about how people also weren't finishing it. Like they were watching it halfway through. And I was like, I feel like The Emperor's New Clothes here. It is not a good movie. Save yourself. I wish. And we also didn't like Saltburn. So, oh my God, I, I, two and a half hours of my life, I can't get back. I need somebody to explain to me what the purpose of that was. I I was like, I, I am officially in middle age because I'm like, I'm too old for this shit. That's how I felt about Silver. I know. I don't understand what Rosamund Pike was wearing last night. And I will say one thing I don't know how anybody competes against Oppenheimer at all. It is as perfect a film as I've ever seen. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. And also, I really love the end of the world uh, Netflix movie with Ethan Hawke and Julie yes, Roberts. I can't yes, remember the name of it. It was like number one. I really liked yes. it. Just FYI. Yeah. And also I'm watching the newest season of Fargo and it's very good. And I feel like yes. every people, other people need to get on this fucking Fargo bandwagon. So because, much. Te- there's so much great television. Yes. But there, Succession, all the great TV shows yes. that won last night. But The yes. Last of Us. You're the with, one, you did tell me. Yeah, yes. We watched The Last oh. of Us together because you were in DC for yes. work yes. when it was going on. And The Last I of Us with, every Sunday night. with yummy Pedro Pascal. Oh my, I, oh my god he is my favorite i love him everybody He's loves the him. best so hot the best. so good but you did turn me you did turn me on to fargo so now that's going to be my new thing uh, it's, it's very it's, look it's kind of violent but it's good anyway yeah. all right all Lori right. blackford right. uh do you want people to follow you on social I mean, she doesn't really I do can. it. She's, really really <laughs> do it. Sorry. She's like, no. you post on Instagram like once a year and you don't they tweet. So she also lives in London. So you'll just see some pictures of like, I don't know, bangers and mash, whatever the hell they eat yeah, over there. Exactly. Whatever. Come back here, please. There's Target and air conditioning and ice. I always say that to her. I'm like, there's Target and air conditioning and ice here. Okay. Come I back. I Target. True. <laughs> All right, Lori. All right. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Bye. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat with me, Megan McCain. I am genuinely so excited for this next guest. Normally, we have my friends and colleagues on. At least that's what it's been so far. And I actually just know this person by her work and by her wonderful Twitter account and her amazing work at Puck News. We have Tina Nguyen, who is the national correspondent at Puck News and author of this crazy new book called MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and uh, How I Got Out, which is like the best title ever. I really love it, Tina. And thank you so much for, first of all, taking time to come on today. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so excited to hang out with you. I really wanted to be in the studio. So, Tina, I just want to start out with this 
this book, I, I haven't gotten a chance to read the whole thing because I just got it. Um, but I was interested in this book if you were going to come on the podcast or not, because as you tweeted, this ain't your mama's boring political memoir. And quite frankly, I don't think I can read or sit through any more like Trump memoirs that are just sort of all saying the same thing. What compelled you to write this just to begin with? Every time I've gone into reporting on like MAGA and conservatism, the first thing that I do is mention that I used to work at the Daily Caller. Uh, the second thing is that I start going into my background of the Claremont Institute, Claremont McKenna, all of these people that I knew as like a college student who are now giant players in the MAGA world. And everyone in the mainstream media has been like, how do you know all this? Wait, so wait, you were a conservative activist? How... How are you a conservative activist? Uh-huh. And I got this question so often that I figured, you know what? It's let, let's just write a book about it. Let's figure out why I did any of this, and maybe there's a lesson to be learned from it. So you want to you talk about how you started out in college, sort of being drawn to uh, right wing conservative activism, being drawn to sort of MAGA, uh, MAGA land. Um, wh- how did that happen in college? Because I am fascinated by this sort of like. Uh, turning point memo. Uh, I, I am fascinated by sort of this group and culture on college campuses that is not just right, but it's like more right than I've ever been in my entire life. And also it is combined with this sort of cult of personality with MAGA, which I don't think took place when you were in college, but but started. When I was younger, my parents were Vietnamese refugees. They really didn't know that much about American politics or society. We didn't really have much money, but I was also a giant nerd about the founding fathers. Like, I love the American Revolution. I love the ideals that the founders put in place for this country. And so when I was applying to colleges, I did end up falling a boy there. But I saw Claremont McKenna and a bunch of research institutions affiliated with it, including this one called the Salvatore Center for the Study of Individual Freedom in the Modern World, And then also they were like, we'll help you develop a career. And I was like, these are the two greatest things that I want. Let's do this. I want it. Uh Uh-huh. First of all, for people that maybe don't know, because the people that listen to this podcast actually like aren't necessarily uh, super plugged into like the nuances of like conservative media, uh, the Daily Caller was is a website that was founded by Tucker Carlson. I understand he has since left. I actually know a few people who have worked there. It's interesting that someone like you and Caitlin Collins got their start there and then has since sort of like rejected the the conservative. I, I don't I wouldn't even know if I'd call it conservative, like alt-right, conservative, whatever, more radical elements of the conservative media space. Uh, why did you end up originally being drawn to work there? This was actually part of the career network that I was talking about earlier. So when I was at... When I was at the Salvatore Center, I got sent all of these internships from conservative think tanks for the summer. And one of them was an internship for paid, like a paid internship for journalists through this group called the um, Institute for Humane Studies. And they were like, oh, my God, you're really into this. Let's put you into the official mentorship program. And so they started linking me up with people who were ideologically aligned with them and one of the jobs that my actual program appointed mentor connected me with was with someone who wanted a tech reporter for the Daily Caller. And straight out of college, I was like, thank you, mentor. I'm going to go here now. Uh-huh. Did you like it? What was the culture like there? Because, um, you know, I have my own experiences with Tucker Carlson that I've talked about on this show that are very unpleasant. I would go so far as to say, you know, abuse is too strong of a word, but just 
extremely unpleasant and unprofessional and uh, very just like cruel, I guess. Things that had to do with my dad when he was dying. I understand, though, because I actually have friends that have worked for him at the Daily Caller and that still know him and love him. And, like, will defend him to me, like, all day long. What was your experience like working with him at the Daily Caller? And then you talk about, in your book, you know, interviewing him and meeting him after you worked at the Daily Caller. He was really fun. Like, first thing he did was just talk to me about all of these people we had in common. About, like, oh, man, I have this grudge against them and I've hated him forever because he slighted me in high school. And I'm like, this is really funny. <sighs> and the entire place was essentially just an extension of college in a way like there were kegerators everywhere tucker was this like maniacal little troll demon who would like steal my bike and ride it around the office everyone just had so much fun there although there was a interesting like contradiction in that tucker himself did not drink anymore and he had like an alcohol an alcohol abuse problem in the past but he was always really into other people drinking so there was like a full bar in the office at some point after I left, I believe. Definitely the kegerator. At one point, apparently he hired a party bus. But here is the uh, thing that I've kind of realized about Tucker. He will be extraordinarily kind to you and will like move heaven and earth for you if he likes you until you have wronged him. And in that case, some switch flips and then he, I assume, like will try to scorch earth you to... You, there's nothing left. I mean, that's how it sounds like it, what happened to you. Because were you also a Daily Caller person for a while? No, I never worked at the Daily Caller. Actually, this is like respectful, but I, because I, at the time that the Daily Caller was like rising, I was living in Los Angeles and working on a TV show in LA and like very into like LA culture and was like, a little not out of politics, but like was doing pop culture and politics at the same time. So I actually mm. didn't know that much about the Daily Caller until I started working at Fox News, which is when like it's like 10 years ago. And, you know, I was surprised in conservative circles. It was and this is respectful to you in your career. It was seen as such a big deal, given the lack of traffic um, that it like, you know, it's not a major site unless you're like a conservative person. I think even in the rankings of conservative sites, it's still not that high. So I was surprised that it was sort of like the people that worked there thought of themselves as the, you know, I don't know, paramount people, which is fine, whatever. But I think Tucker has this cult following. I think that's part of it is that like working for him, the people I know have worked for him um, who have this positive relationship with him will, same thing, go to the ends of the earth with him. My great sin was Roger Stone uh, told my dad that he was going to burn in hell when he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And then I said that Roger Stone should go to hell back. And uh, or it was I think it was around the time he was arrested. And then Tucker texted me this like litany of text messages defending Roger Stone. And then I I sent something nasty back. And I think I told him to go to hell. I can't remember. Um, and then I blocked him. And that's like my last interaction with Tucker Carlson ever. So I've been fascinated by his evolution into like kingdom and conservative news and then sort of the downfall. Uh, when you interviewed him, it was at the height of his time at Fox. What was that experience like? And was he trusting of you because you had left the Daily Caller? I absolutely don't know if he was trusting of me. I am you know, a sweet little Asian girl who doesn't yell at people. So I think that may have had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. But he was literally just wandering around his town, headed to the barn where he filmed his show at the time. And he was just like saying hi to neighbors. I could hear him getting in and out of the car. Um, he was just in this moment where I think he just wanted to tell me what was whatever was on his mind. And I mean, I'd approached him not 
in the sense of like, oh, what was your political evolution like? But like, what do you think of the media now as someone who pitched the Daily Caller as a conservative answer to the New York Times, like factually driven, maybe taking stories that a journalist from a liberal circle would not be picking up? A noble goal at the time, but like ever since he leapt over to the opinion space, I was like, interesting. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you just like dropped those ideals? And he was just like, yeah, I don't believe in conservative journalism anymore. I believe in journalism, period. But then his definition of journalism, period, was just like, what is it? Like, why is it that the media says, I can't say this? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that's been driving him, especially as someone who used to be friends with all of those media people in the first place. Like, the entire time, I would say about like 20, 25% of the time was him just like, ranting about people he used to know and how much they sucked and had all these like pithy little nicknames for them like reptile creature ben smith or ariana huffington narcissistic rich lady and i'm just sitting there going oh okay sure here we go it's all very juvenile i mean he loves a nickname much like i guess trump does i sort of subsist in this really strange space in conservative media and i guess like conservatism in general, because I still am very conservative and people um, on the left still like sort of I always joke that like there's no dinner party that people like me at because like liberals are like, oh, that conservative pro-life chick is here. And then conservative people are like (laughs) the one who's always feuding. She's not MAGA. Fuck like fuck her, whatever. So I like live in this really weird area, which is probably why I have to do like independent stuff a lot. And I do think the people that I know and people that I've been close with who have been drawn and stayed in Magaland, it seems like a very intoxicating space because it's like you are all for this one cult leader or, you know, I guess it's not, I guess that's too extreme, but this one cult of personality leader, Trump, who has the answer to all your problems and we are in it and we're amazing and we're alphas and, you know, we're we're not the ones that are betas or woke or blah, blah, blah. And they sort of like amp each other up and then think everything on the outside is just the enemy, which I think is a very dangerous place to be in. Um, Did you feel sort of like amped up in that way when you were in like the throes of daily caller conservative media areas? Not at the time, although the further out I got from the daily caller, the more I could start feeling it. Um, So after the daily caller, I went back to that mentor I was talking about earlier uh, because he was linking me up with jobs left and right. And he sent me to this succession of news outlets that were more and more sketchy, I would say is the best term. But every time I talked to the editors or people running him, they would always be like, we want to really attack the Dems the way that the media is attacking the Republicans. And I was thinking like, okay, no, you're giving me this story, but the Republican is doing the exact same thing. This is a little weird. I don't like this. And I just couldn't square being told to twist the truth or decontextualize the truth in this for the sake of hitting a Democrat. The moment that I was asked to do that, I was like, nope, I'm out. Screw you, Washington. I'm moving to New York and I'm going to become a food blogger. Uh huh. Yeah. When you what, what was your next job after the Daily Caller? And did you ever consider like leaving political media entirely? Oh, I was literally a food blogger in New York, and this was 2012, and this was the height of the celebrity chef phase, so I was going to restaurants all the time, I was hanging out with, like, big-name chefs, Anthony Bourdain had, like, a mini feud with me, mm-hmm. uh, that was pretty intoxicating, and I, for a while, just did not want to go back, because 
I wasn't sure whether going into the media or like trying to break into the mainstream space, I would face the same problems. But primarily it was because like, I have the Daily Caller in my resume. I have all these really sketchy right wing things on my resume. Will I be able to break into political media if like the New York Times looked at that and was like, no, she's a, she's a little too conservative for us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I stayed in food media for like two years before I was like, this is hard on my body. I cannot do this uh-huh. anymore. And then what was your next job? Uh, Mediate actually, which was under the same um, parent company. So it's run by Dan Abrams. I saw that there was a position opening up because Noah Rothman, who's um, currently a commentary, was leaving. He's our friend, yeah. Oh, great guy. Love yeah, him. So good. Uh, uh, so yeah, he was leaving and he was, and he also brought in, uh, millions and millions of people in web traffic, which was sort of the coin of the realm at the time. And so since I knew the back end, since I kind of kept following the news cycle, I just went up to the CEO and was like, look, it's going to take you three months to find someone else to replace him, or you could just shift me over there. That's a better use of resources. And they're like, oh, okay, let's see how this goes. And like the instinct just came back to me pretty quickly. I don't know whether it's because it's a predictable news cycle or I could just like keep track of everything and was in the know-how, but uh, I stuck around media for about nine months to a year before I saw that Vanity Fair had a blogger position opened. And so I uh, took the Daily Caller off my resume and applied there and it worked. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, there was recently um, a data point that came out that said it's like less than 4% of journalists in period are Republicans. And again, I think I would hope that journalists are unbiased no matter what their personal opinions are. I don't think we live in that fantasy land anymore. Do you think part of what has made you successful and make such a name for yourself is that you sort of understand how on some level conservatives think, how Republicans think? Because for me, if I were looking to hire someone, I actually think it would be a positive to hire someone who would work there and this other variety of places you have because I do think so much of like when I get frustrated with how conservatives are covered, it's because sometimes it feels like there's just such an extreme bias and a a, a personality judgment, I guess. Like even some of the things that are said about like friends of mine, I'm like, no, they're like really rational people. They're just conservatives. Um, do you think it's like helped you with your journalism career at all, too? Oh, absolutely. One of the things about going to Claremont McKenna was that I ended up studying with the people who make like the intellectual backbone of current Trumpism right now, even though they were back in the day, like fairly neoconservative in 2008, but Charles Kessler, Mark Blitz, um, all the Claremont Institute people. I knew Straussianism. I knew Straussian um, thought I learned, I literally studied so much of the founding fathers, seminal texts. And so like, the moment that I can step into a conservative space and be like, oh man, yeah, I like studied how James Madison brought Episcopalian thought and theology into his view of the government versus Hamilton versus Adams. Everyone's like, oh my God, you get it. Okay. You know, all the, you know, all the basic stuff. The way that I've described it to like my mainstream colleagues is that like, if you were to go to Japan and were asked to write an article about something happening in Japanese politics, it's a lot easier if you know the language, if you know the culture, the history, the current political climate, philosophy, 
uh, rather than if you were just to go in and be like, oh, my God, they eat raw fish here. <laughs> yes. Yes. I totally agree with Which that. Is, yeah. Mm. Like that's sort of, I think, where mainstream journalists kind of get it wrong. I've kind of been fascinated. You you talk about like a lot of the people you worked with are now part of the sort of intellectual backbone of MAGA land. I actually just found out this weekend that a guy who works on my dad's campaign, who's actually Fred Thompson's grandson, was Trump's body man. I don't know how I have completely missed that in in the like time. And I was like, I'm not. I won't say. It. I mean, you can go look it up. It's not that that. It's not like it's a secret. But I was just shocked because I was like, God, I always thought he was like. I don't know, like not MAGA. Like it like surprised me that he was someone who went to the ranks where he was literally Trump's body man. Like that's how much you believe in this man. Um, have you been surprised by the kind of people who are part of Trump land? And do you think these same people that have helped him get elected before will stay and help him if he is, uh, you know, running, obviously running now becomes the nominee and then possibly president again? Not really, uh, to be quite honest. I think everyone I knew back in the day was more aligned with the Tea Party libertarian movement, which is like, at that point, it was just like states' rights and the government shouldn't like take our money to pay for Obamacare. But there was also a really strong anti-establishment, anti-mainstream current running through it. And I think Trump kind of took it in a, that instinct in much more populist direction. The moment that he started using the executive actions to like, do unconstitutional things. I think internally the heritage type of folks were like, oh my God, you're going too far. You're disrespecting the documents. Uh But the, but the base loved it. The base that the tea party was ostensibly speaking to. And I think the moment that activist world and the people who were pushing for this one vision were like, oh, oh, the people we're trying to court actually want this. Well, we represent the American people. Sure. Why not? You know, Tina, you're working at Puck right now, which is, I think, like such a fascinating website. And I, I think it's a newsletter. I get newsletters from it, too. Um, I love the reporting that's done. on. I think it's like a really interesting space and media in a world of really deeply uninteresting things out there. What do you look forward to in reporting and covering at this moment right before the primaries and then going into what's going to be, you know, looks like kind of a clusterfuck of an election? What still fascinates you about this space? I have spent like seven to eight years trying to convince my editors, my colleagues that MAGA was not just a fringe thing or just a normal cult of personality that would fade away once Trump disappeared, but like an actual movement bolstered by an infrastructure that kind of got hijacked. And everyone who used to work at like Heritage or CPI or National Review were like, we believed in this one vision of conservatives. Oh no, it's this one. Okay, we got to back this. Like that's just a force multiplier for whatever Trump brought into the world. Mm-hmm. Like if he were just a normal guy yelling into a crowd of people, he'd just be a normal guy. But now he has power and now the people who had worked for him have like immense power too. So every time I've talked to my colleagues, I'm like, this is real. They're like, there's no way. And then it has been made real multiple times. And so like, now I get to cover that in a way that's like impactful and takes all of the knowledge that I've gathered and was told was kind of silly and make it like tangible and about things that will have consequence. Do you think that people have finally understood in the mainstream that MAGA is 
you know, I, I think it's the Republican Party now with people like me who sort of like vacillate the deep outskirts. Uh, but do you think they understand that it's here and here to stay at least? I mean, I assume until, you know, for the for the long foreseeable future. I think they're getting it. I think they're still trying to wrap their heads around it, which is why the coverage still kind of is like lacking. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like people are trying to hire more uh, reporters that have like backgrounds in red states, backgrounds with covering Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. Do you mind if I go like a little bit into like media analysis real quick? Oh, by all means, please. Cool. Um, so I think one of the conflicts that's going to arise in newsrooms in the immediate future, though, is having someone there who can speak Republican, can speak MAGA, try to get these sources to talk to them. Will they start getting pushback within their own newsrooms for not being the type of person who's, quote, trying to take down MAGA? Like, it is a pretty liberal-leaning institution, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, that increasingly seems to have more and more internal pushback against someone who could possibly treat the other side as complicated humans who are doing a complicated thing. I remember when I was working at Vanity Fair and literally pitching the book, so many editors had come up to me and were like, are you a liberal now? And they were looking for that liberal conversion story. And it's like, I can't do that. I am a journalist who experienced the thing and I'm writing about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy my editor saw my vision and went along with it for the MAGA Diaries, but I don't know whether the quality of coverage around MAGA is going to be more informative or more nuanced or more revelatory. I think that Trump is going to win simply because I think so many people in the media are helping him win. I tried to explain to a friend of mine recently who is on the left and, you know, I love them for being on whatever. I have friends of all different kind of persuasions in my life. Thank God I can't be one of those people that only, you know, socializes with Republicans. But he was getting very... um emotional about January 6th and was asking me about January 6th. And I was like, look, it was hideous and horrific. And I was here in DC when it happened. And I'm not, I'm never saying different. It was, it was awful. But for my girlfriend in Phoenix, who has four children and is now going to Costco and literally sending me screenshots of what her Thanksgiving dinner cost last year and costs now, she doesn't give a shit about January 6th. She cares about the fact that her Thanksgiving dinner is making an impact. And she thinks that the economy was better under Trump. And I don't understand why so many people in the media are expecting average Americans who don't have the luxury to make January 6th and things like that the number one issue when food and, you know, money and national security and all these things that are very scary are really impacting people in a real way. I just don't understand why there's so many journalists and people in the media that haven't gotten that memo and that when you judge voters for that, for them not being like you, it only makes them love Trump more. I don't know if you have a response to that. That's my opinion. No, I think I kind of have noticed that trend as well. And honestly, one of the things I love about Puck is that I get to speak my mind on things like this. So uh, cancel me, fools. No, no. Uh, Puck is very uh, fair, I will say. And again, I I don't read. I really have like a hard time reading. Uh, I'm very curated with like the with the not information, but with the journalists and things that I like subscribe to and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like the coverage. And I'm very conservative. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we're, I think we're mostly driven by like cynicism and an understanding that people are vain, especially people in power. So uh, that's our approach. 
I do wonder in the industry writ large, especially in the industry in Washington, the obsession over institutions and whether they can withstand populism or Trumpism or MAGAism or what have you is a very Washington thing to worry about. Like that's sort of their day-to-day life, but it's really like insulated and cosseted. Uh, there's this one point where I go on a road trip in the book and I decide to keep driving around in circles for six months across America. And everyone is just terrified. Everyone literally has no idea what's going on. All they are hearing about is one, the cost of food rising two elites in coastal cities in academia or the corporate world or Hollywood or what have you like trying to push a specific vision of America on them to the point where it's like, oh, no, meritocracy doesn't exist anymore because all of these guys want DEI initiatives and socialism. And it's just like not resonating here. I think I have an idea why, but like, do you know what's really insane? I have run into so many people in the course of my work here who are like, why do minorities vote for Trump? And I'm Mm -hmm. like, it's because they all have backgrounds in countries where their governments were toppled by socialism and their way of life was destroyed. And they came here and they worked their asses off. And now they're terrified it's going to happen again. Like Vietnamese Americans love voting for Trump. Yeah, because of that, there's a lot of data polling about minority voters, specifically Hispanic voters, and the socialism messaging, like just basically being the most toxic thing possible for them that they don't want socialism because a lot of these communities have fled those type of governments and they love America and they want to be here and they do want to assimilate and they want to be Americans. And I think it's interesting. Democrats have sort of pushed an anti-American message uh, and like America is just like this shithole that's irredeemable and all these things. And it isn't resonating. And I think it's fascinating. I talked about on my last episode with Kristen Soltis Anderson and Emily Eakins, these pollsters uh, about how the Hispanic vote is really up for grabs right now and that Biden is really losing it. And I, I think it's I think it's fascinating. And I also feel like all a Democrat has to do is talk to you or me for 20 minutes and I could tell you how to fix it. But I don't it's like, why don't you want to fix it? Why don't you want to win an election? That's the part I don't understand. So I have a therapist. OK. <laughs> and um, and no, and like so much of what I talk to her about is like trying to break through to people I talk to on a regular basis about the things that I see as a journalist and the things that I am bringing to them and this consistent resistance I get from them about like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Thankfully I work with people who kind of get over that, but the way she put it was, I think what it is is that you have people who want your knowledge, but refuse to acknowledge that it's true. Mm -hmm. And that's just a mental block that you're going to have to like get around in order to keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, oh, oh, my God. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's great. And and then like I got so much better at work. I think that's great advice from from your therapist. And we all have therapists. So there's no there's no shame in any of that. (laughs) I want to know for going forward, because you have worked in media a long time, you have this like really incredible background. um, What advice would you give to any young person listening or just any person in general who would want to go into the space that you're at doing reporting? Because even just in the time that I've been working in media and obviously in a different way than you, it's really changed a lot. And I I don't know what I would tell like a 20 year old because it's uglier it's meaner it's harsher facts don't matter as much telling the truth doesn't matter as much people live in different silos what advice would you give i think 
just read a lot. Read anything. Read everything like that does not come inside your information silo. If you're a liberal, go to the Federalist, go to the Blaze, go read, go like listen into Michael Knowles or like you or Megyn Kelly. Just like try to understand the contours and nuances of how other people think. If you're a conservative or someone who comes from a more conservative background, it's a lot easier, I think, for you to get the mainstream or liberal side because they think they have just a greater reach. But the idea that you need to continue living inside this information silo in order to become a better journalist, I think, is a terrible idea. And the more you can demonstrate facility in many political languages, I think the better off you will be. What does your family think of your job? My mother, I think she would have been, she passed a while ago. She would have been a little confused, but happy whenever I appear on cable news. Uh-huh. Um, my The rest of my family is often kind of worried for my safety, but they know that I'm pretty confident in covering this field. And as long as I can tell them, like, look, I'll be fine. I know what I'm doing. They'll be completely okay with it. Well, it's so crazy that doing what you do is dangerous because it is now, you know, and I I even sometimes feel like, I mean, you know, like there's different situations where sometimes I just don't want people to know who, like going to do doctors or something like that. Not that any doctor would do anything, but like, I don't want to have politics get involved with things in like ways like that where I I just don't want it to because I don't want someone to like be nasty to me because of what I believe. Um, Do you think that journalism in general has just become a more dangerous place? It could be. I really, really think it could be, especially the moment that you leave a world that is, you know, safe for you as a journalist. The worst thing that could happen in Washington is someone takes a photo of me going on a date with some liberal. Uh, (laughs) The moment that... (laughs) The moment okay. that I stepped out, yeah, no, the moment that I stepped outside, it got really terrifying. Like, I do not try to let people know that I'm a journalist unless I absolutely have to. But in other environments, I literally just approach them going, Hey, I'm a journalist. I just gotta, I don't want to hide anything. Can I ask you some questions? And surprisingly, they are very kind to me when I actually approach them with an open mind. This is a really weird thing I've noticed, but there's a way that professional journalists on the road will dress, and I try to avoid that, and that somehow helps. Do you like, mean you, I like, dress never... more dressed up? Um, A little bit more dressed up or a little bit more casual. Like, there's a specific blazer and jeans and a lanyard look that most journalists will kind of gravitate towards. But this is a fun story. So leading up into January 6th, I became friends with a war correspondent who covered civil unrest around the world. And one of the things he was telling me in advance was do not look like you are a journalist. If you need to put your lanyard away in order to stay safe, do so. Just maintain situational awareness the entire time. And so, uh, My story that I pitched that day was I want to go to the Capitol and interview people who are there to harass lawmakers. Uh Uh, Yeah, that was fun. And I literally wore a giant pink pom-pom hat and (laughs) sneakers. (laughs) And just for some reason, the more I talked to Proud Boys, the higher and higher and higher my voice pitch went up. So it's like, hi, Uh um, 
Hey, I'm, I'm a journalist, and uh, I saw that you were doing this thing here, and I'm really curious. That's wild. I, well, and I think probably interviewing and reporting on people like that has to just be totally fascinating. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I can, but it just sounds it sounds so intense. In my experience, when I've been interviewed by journalists, I do prefer someone who isn't dressed like that. For some reason, I agree with you. Like, there's some kind of uniform that, that they all wear that kind of is off-putting. I agree. Anyway, uh, Tina, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. I'm really excited about this book. It comes out the 16th. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So very soon next week, it's called The MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. This cover, by the way, is beautiful. I love this cover. Oh, it's really well done. Are you? What are you expecting from the release? Are you expecting to make any more friends, enemies? Like, What, what do you want uh, in the next week when people get to finally read it? I would like for liberals and progressives to understand more about the world of conservatism. I would like centrist Republicans to be like, oh, my God, that's what happened here. And honestly, I kind of want MAGA Republicans to be like, "Okay, no, she's not one of us, but she got it right. Yeah. That's great. And I love that. I love that. I think you probably do all those things. And I really appreciate the reporting you do and the work you do. And I just want to thank you again so much for taking time today, Tina. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Welcome back to Megan McCain has entered the chat. Look, I promised and now we are delivering. We have to talk about Real Housewives of Salt Lake City with none other than the king of all reality television. He is the Kingdom Reign Entertainment CEO, creator of Love and Marriage franchise. Uh, he hosts the Reality with the King podcast and the executive producer of the highest rated season of Real Housewives of Atlanta in all of Bravo history. And you're a friend of the show. You're my first repeat guest. Thank you so much for coming on, Carlos. I feel so honored, and Megan McCain is my girl. She's my Judy, and when I say to you, raindrops. And Megan, what's your fan base name? I have the raindrops. We have oh, to man. give your fans a name. I don't. I haven't even gotten that far. I don't know. I, I will. I'll I will think about it though. Your raindrops. That's a good one. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. I like that so, a lot. Me and Meg were texting all of Wednesday night, going crazy over Salt Lake City, and I cannot wait to talk to you about it, because, girl, I'm still not recovered. So, first of all, I want to thank you for letting me, like, blow up your phone. For some reason, I thought you had seen it already. I don't know why I always think of you, like, having screeners and, like, getting, like, previews of things beforehand. I didn't realize I was texting you, like, during, and I was like, Carlos, what am I watching? What is happening? So, for people who are not watching, and maybe don't watch Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, one of the most incredible episodes of, I think, reality television that has ever uh, happened happened where one of the new housewives was exposed allegedly for being a person behind like a, a trolling account of other real housewives or being a person who was one of many people involved of a trolling account is that a good way to describe it yes okay so mm -hmm. first of all why did you freak out as much as you did? And then I'll explain why I did, too. Why would you think, given that you, you know, produced the highest rated season of Real Housewives of Atlanta and Bravo history, why is this? I mean, freaking Jennifer Lawrence last night was on the Red Golden Globes red I carpet talking about this episode. No, it's because, look, back in my days of producing reality television, we were trying to find out, like, who Big Papa was that Kim Zodiac yeah. was dating, right? Like, it was that big mystery, and we were okay with never seeing him. We were fine as as viewers and producers to sort of play up this mystery, this phantom, if you will. So the fact that you have this woman named Monica, this beautiful Latina, 
who came on the show and, and gave you so much comedy and reality admitted to fucking her brother-in-law, which yeah. by the way, I have brothers-in-law. I'm not fucking any of them. I don't care how funny I get. Same. Let's just say that for the record. I'm not but, attracted to my brother-in-law at all. No offense. I mean, like, good the, lord. In the least. So we have this woman on reality TV who is exposing all of her secrets. And we were attracted to that because the Real Housewives nowadays is very different than the Vicky Gulbison era. These women are going on these shows to promote their products, to be rich, to be famous, and they're not exposing themselves, right? Which is why Erica James, like, look, Denise Richards, who's getting more money on OnlyFans, you or your mm -hmm. child, right? Like, what's going on, sister? Um, so with Monica, we fell in love instantly. So to find out that she was behind a, a blog called Reality Von Tees, and she was a part of this very localized Salt Lake City blog that attacked the women on the show. So it was the first time, Megan, in in our generation on reality television that a blogger sort of got her way onto reality television, became the fan favorite, and, and did it behind everyone's back, including the producer. So that's the question I have for you is, first of all, the reveal. You know, I'm a Monica fan, which I don't know if that makes me like. Me I, too, sister. Yeah, I am. And I still am. And I want her to come back. But I, I feel like, A, she was working for this, like, abusive, crazy person who was under investigation by the FBI for ripping off old people and was trying to expose her. So I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt of that. The other people involved in this blog and Instagram account are trying to screw her over right now and sell stories to tabloids. So they're not, like, reliable actors either and also ladies why are you more upset with an instagram account than you were a person who was literally i watched the hulu documentary who was literally stealing money from very poor elderly people i don't understand why they're more upset they kicked this woman off their vacation and told her to pack her bags and go home like it was fucking survivor what what i don't understand like this disconnect like when i was watching it i thought it was insane but then i was like i don't understand why the women are so much more upset about this than a woman who's sitting in federal prison for the action she did yeah it goes to show you how again when it comes to these newer reality stars they're not really friends they're they're on the show to get along to sort of play along for the paycheck so the thing with monica was let's have a real conversation monica is the least wealthiest person on reality television including the tlc shows mm -hmm. okay she makes less than mama june i fear <laughs> So the fact that you have this woman named Monica who come on the show and these women, Heather, Whitney, Lisa, and Meredith, they're, they're wealthy women in Salt Lake City. So they never felt that Monica belonged. So the fact that they had to like film with one of Jen's arch nemesis and then sort of realize she's bringing great drama and comedy, Heather already knew the tea before the finale. And it was Heather's doing to make sure that the finale was the time and place to expose her because let's be clear that big little lie scene on the beach which by the way was great it was great they were acting you yeah. know they weren't like shocked and surprised and the tears and and all of those things they were they 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 never wanted monica to be amongst their sort of crowd which is why they gave her all of this smoke and to monica's credit I have never met a person, and I worked on Jersey with Danielle Style. <laughs> I mean, the table flipped on her. Uh -huh. Monica was cool as a cucumber. 
She was. And the fact that she's like, you Donald Trump supporter to Lisa. I'm yeah. like, yeah. Now we're breaking politics into this, honey. Am I watching The View? What's going uh, on? <laughs> I'm living. I know. It was such good drama, but I felt like Heather was acting. Um, you know, yes. I'm not the biggest Heather fan just because I think she, like, kind of co-opted my book title and I, <gasps> we like don't talk about this enough yeah my book came out it's called bad republican and then her book came out like two years later called bad mormon i mean look there was a book called bad feminist that came out before mine so maybe this is just like a trend but yeah i had some feelings when it came out and it was noted like some people wrote at the time that like oh it's like kind of like megan mccain's book title whatever anyway i just don't like love her as a housewife and gen- i know people do like i think she serves a purpose but i also think she's like an over actor like when she was slapping her hands and she was like notes whatever but i was like dude you are this is like and again i'm i'm drama too like whatever but i'm not a reality star i felt like it was really produced and really like acting and that's what again why are you more upset about this than about people stealing from the elderly and doing like a big ponzi scheme so that's the part i don't under that for me i just did not understand what do you think like why are they more upset just because this is like strict classism and they're like oh monica who has you know very little money is integrating into our circle and she shouldn't be here like was that it oh what 100 i think the thing with jim let's be clear they were scared of her mm-hmm. you know what i mean they, they were scared of her and one thing i know about working on these housewife shows there is this hierarchy that you have to sort of play by especially if you're considered an og so nowadays megan you could be on the show for two seasons and you're an og like mm-hmm. girl bye we, we need at least 10 years to yeah. sort of like have have the balls to say that Heather is an actress. She needs to be on the set of a HBO Max movie, <laughs> sort of playing a character because she's so dramatic. And she herself is a big little liar. The fact that you had this black guy and Megan, do you remember this? You and I were texting each other at that time. And Megan was asking me, like, who did it, Carlos? You know everybody. Yes. I'm sure someone told you. And I said, Megan, I have asked everybody who I know. They said she refuses to tell people. Yes. So the and then she was that- like, Jen Shaw punched me. And I was like, what the hell does this have to do with anything? And also, you lied a lot then. Yeah. Because she said, I don't remember. Yeah. She's a liar. And, and so the thing with Jen, to answer your question, they were afraid of Jen. They they were they're, they're they're still afraid of her. So the fact that you guys can go to New York City to sort of like support her and to defend her and to say innocent until proven guilty, which by the way, I I believe in the Constitution mm-hmm. and the law, so that's fine. But if we're going to ostracize Monica for having a blog, mm-hmm. she didn't steal from orphans. She didn't steal from elderly people. She doesn't have your social security number. She may have the address to your home and drives by, you know, in her car and, and to stalk you. She may do that, but she's not using your social security numbers to steal money from you. And I think that is the reason why all of us, at least 99% of the people are Team Monica. Yeah, so I thought maybe I was only Team Monica. And the reason why I still stay, like, first of all, she's incredible television and I need incredible television in this space. And I would like her to come back just because she's clearly pissing everybody off and whatever. I also think the, I don't like mob mentality. Like anytime everyone's bullying one person or coming after one thing and saying, Megan, you have to believe this and whatever. I'm a contrarian and I'm automatically like, no, wait. I listened to her. She said, I was trying to help put this woman in jail and expose the stuff she was doing, which I think is noble, actually. 
I don't know the rest of this Von Teese Instagram. I didn't follow it. I still don't really know. Were they putting messy stuff about other people? Maybe. But she said there were two other people involved, including Heather's hairdresser. So let me tell you something. The man who does my hair is my best friend. I mean, he's been my best friend for... I mean, he's much more than that. His name's Josh. I mean, my friends know him. He knows every dirty secret he knows he could put me in the ground he could end my life i mean he knows everything i've been friends with him since i was 21 years old i'm not 39 you do the math and through lots of incarnations oh, wow. in my life he was my best man in my wedding i love him josh i love you, you know how much i love you you're telling me your hairdresser and you when she's putting in those that extensions those tracks of extensions which i know takes five hours because i used to wear them myself <laughs> actually i wore great lengths not tracks or whatever but like you're telling me those five hours has never came up why aren't you pissed at your hairdresser if josh had done something like that to me it would it would decimate my life so why aren't you mad at your hairdresser as well yeah, no, I agree with you. So listen, Megan, in the community, in the black community, we have this thing called snitches get stitches. Okay. okay? We do. Yes, I get it. We have that thing in the political community, too. Okay, good. <laughs> That's why we relate to each other so well. Now, the fact that Tanisha is a snitch, it reminded me of when you said, I think it was Bill Barr or somebody, but you said, I would never tell him off the record if I had lunch. Put it yes, up. yes, like, yes. Oh, you know, you know, I stand for you. Thank so you. That's how I am. Like, I have a barber who, like, does my hair, you know, it doesn't yeah. take five hours, it takes 50 minutes. But, like, your glam squad is your person. So, Tanisha is the villain in this story. Yes. So, it begs the question again, Megan McCain, why is everybody mad at Monica instead of Tanisha Jen Shaw? It is confusing to me. And one of the one of the listeners on, on my podcast said to me, did they realize after filming for a few months that, wow, Monica may be the fan favorite. And because they sort of had this pact, the, the four OGs, they really wanted to ice her out because Angie K to me is a walking comedy show. She's like, the Goldie I like her. Hawn. Yeah. Yeah. She's like Goldie Hawn of Salt Lake City. Like she's funny. I can watch her all day long. Her husband's hot. Yeah. And I love her family dynamic. But there was something about the power of Monica that made these women not want to embrace her. And, and I'm with you. She, If she does not come back on the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, there's going to be an insurrection. Okay. So I was going to ask this. How likely do you think – and by the way, I stand you too. I love all your work and everything you do. We're just having a love fest here. I do. Um, and you're a true genius in the entertainment space. Not Thank not you. just saying extra on, but you are. But that's why you're here to talk about this. Do you think that Bravo is going to have her back? I mean, I would be – I would be really angry. And again, I think it's a lot of classism. I don't think we can underestimate this honestly in it because she is of lower income and she's very honest about it. And I think there's a lot. Look, people, she reminds me of some of my girlfriends from high school. I say that with absolute love and affection. Kind of messy, made some poor decisions, trucking along, still trying. Like, she really reminds me of some of my girlfriends from home. And I don't understand why why they're even approaching the idea of not having her back. She's great TV. We're t Jennifer Lawrence is talking about this at the Golden Globes. Why don't you want to continue this? Do you think Bravo will have her back? I think they will now that they've seen the fan reaction. I think when it all happened, it probably was a, a hell no. And I'm going to tell you why. The network has this obsession with wanting to say, although, guys, the veil has been lifted. They want to have us believe these women are real friends. 
that these women hang out off off camera, and we know they don't. Some do a lot; they just do not. So that that brings the excuse, Megan, as to well, if the women aren't filming with her, how does it make sense for her to come back? And my argument is this: I, Carlos King, did the first two seasons of The Real Housewives of New Jersey. Danielle Staub was on an island, mm-hmm. and she came back second season because at the end of the day, similar to Monica, everybody felt bad for Danielle because they realized this family mob, if yeah. you will, they were ostracizing this poor woman, same like Monica, lower income, single mom, checkered past. Um, but she was honest about you know her real name being Beverly. The only mistake that... Danielle May going into season two, Megan, we begged her, like, try to at least have conversations with these ladies. Maybe apologize for some things you did. She absolutely refused to do so. Then all of a sudden she had these friends, Kim D and Kim G. She had Danny the Danny, Danny, that guy. (laughs) I forgot about Danny. Who's that creepy? Like, no offense. I mean, he's like maybe a mobster guy yeah danny yes like he needs his own netflix documentary yes. Time yes so you had and we kept saying to her like make right with these women she refused to do so and that's why it didn't make sense like danielle there's at this point danielle there's no reason to bring you back my hope for monica is this i hope she comes back and says look was it shady and wrong absolutely and i apologize but let's try to figure out how to get past this and what I want the other ladies to believe and, and remember is this. Like you said, Megan, Jennifer Lawrence, an Oscar Golden Globe winner, is talking about Salt Lake City on the red carpet and being obsessed with it. Get your ego out of the door mm-hmm. and stick to making the show great because, and I, and I said this to you, I had no plans of watching Salt Lake City until the raindrops and all my listeners said, you must watch it. Monica saved the show. Mm-hmm. Do what's best for the show. She 100% saved the show. She 100% needs to do a sit-down interview with you, like, immediately. And I really, I want to say, I know, look, I know what it feels like to be the odd girl out. I know what it feels like to have your colleagues not talk to you and be so nasty to you, Monica. Hang in there and come back, okay? That's all I'm going to say with that. I do, and I love my, it's so funny. My friend, Essie Cobb, was telling me, she was like, because we, we got in a conversation about why I still like Tanya Harding, and I was like, I love a girl that gets a shit beat out of her that still hangs in there. Like, I really, I'm still a Tanya Harding fan over an Nancy Kerrigan one. Like, I'm still a Monica fan over everyone else, and I'm like, I just have this affinity for people who, like, you know, the world decides that they hate them and they're going to try and take them down. And I'm like, Monica, come back for real. And I don't want Heather dictating what I get to watch and not watch. I'm just saying that. Okay. Oh, no, I could I could not agree with you more. And listen, you and I are friends and I, I agree with you. That's why we're so close, because we we we, we, we root for the underdog because we, we I do. understand that the powers that be. They are the gatekeepers, and they can sometimes work and conspire against one person who they feel like doesn't belong at the table with them. Mm-hmm. And I and and to to have the unmitigated gall, who the fuck are you, Heather mm-hmm. Gay, to tell Monica you can leave and pack your bags and go home? It was so mean. You didn't pay for this trip. It was so mean. And 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 you this 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 isn't even your country. Like it was so upsetting to me because I I don't like, like you said, this mob mob mentality, 
this elitist attitude that they had toward this poor woman. Again, was she wrong? Sure. But to sort of bully her to leaving the country, and that's the last thing we see of her is walking away into the sunset, was not okay. I agree with that, and I also feel like it was not Heather's place to say it, and I just, I didn't like anything about it. But again, apparently we're not alone, because you said that the fans agree. I have one final question to ask you. Um, I saw an Instagram story may, on your account, or uh, by Wig Hello Drama, which is another great Instagram account that follows <laughs> uh, uh, lots of uh, Bravo gossip, um, that last night, or the day before yesterday, uh, Kyle Richards and Morgan Wade, who may or may not be in a lesbian relationship, are towing the line talking more about their relationship, which Quite frankly, I'm so sick of talking about and hearing about. But I wanted to know, do you think that they are going to be more open about the possibility of them being in a lesbian relationship? Because Salt Lake City is showing them how drama is done. And I'm officially bored with Beverly Hills. I'm officially fucking bored with Kyle. Do you think that they're going to start amping up this and her, you know, clearly leaving Mauricio for a woman? Whatever. It's fine. Great. Whatever. Um, Do you think they're going to start doing that more because Salt Lake City has really upped the ante? I believe at the reunion, yes. The season already filmed and it, and it wrapped. This was not a great season. I would call it a transition season. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa Renna, as crazy as she was, she at least provided good. good I miss her too. I, I miss I her miss too her dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, that show needs to step it up, and I and I do think Kyle is going to reveal at the reunion that she is in a romantic relationship with Morgan. And let me tell you something, Megan McCain. Me, you, SE Cup, we're going to rent out IPIC Theater in D.C. It'll be us three girls in our pajamas and popcorn, and Josh can do all of our hair. Uh, 100%. And we are going to watch the new premiere of Beverly Hills because if Morgan Wade and Kaya open up the episode in the bedroom. Yeah. I'll start watching Honey, again. That's the only way to save that show to me. I'll start watching again if they do that. I think they're speaking of classism. I think that Kyle, there is something so elite about like I'm a rich, wealthy Beverly Hills lady, and I'm not going to divorce my husband for maybe money reasons or whatever. And I don't really have to be open with you, but I'm going to tease all day long about my me and my relationship. I also don't like the queer baiting part of it. That's getting a little political, but I think it's actually like you know, there's a lot of people in and out of the closet that struggle with that. I don't like sort yeah. of using that for publicity. And I also think uh, no matter who you are, if you're dating someone 30 years younger than you, it's kind of gross. And uh, <laughs> I say that as someone whose dad and mother were 20 years apart in age, but I think that's a good cap off. I don't like this season. <laughs> I don't like this season of Beverly Hills, Carlos. I really don't. So, you know, I just think they got to up. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I think they need to up the ante. And, uh, yeah, I think Kyle Wade and Morgan or Morgan Wade and Kyle Richards watch Salt Lake City because Monica's how it's done, sweetheart. And she doesn't have a lot of money. She's walking around with one designer purse, making a whole <laughs> season of TV for you and I to talk a whole half hour about. I love you, Carlos. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm, I'm flying to DC to talk to you more. I miss Anytime. you. I love you so much. I love you. This was so much fun. And listen, as always, Megan McCain is spot fucking on. <laughs> you and I just have the same opinions on things. That's part of it. But I listen to your podcast and I'm like, uh huh, I agree. I agree with all of us. You and I are definitely on the same page. Uh, but again, like, I feel like a lot of fans are on our, the Bravo fans are too. And I really appreciate you coming on for this special emergency. Uh, episode where we talk you know, about Salt Lake anything, City. Anything, anything for you. you anything know that. for I'm, you too. I'll I'm come on your show to anytime here. too. You don't always have to come on mine. Oh yeah, no, no, you have to come back. No, listen, anytime. I know you are a mom. You have a lot going on. But I'll no, come you on have anytime. To come back. 
because we have to talk about the the Beverly Hills towards the end of the season because you're friends with Erica Jane. I am. And I want Erica Jane to know. Round of applause. She's saving it. She's saving she it. She is. She is. And she looks good doing it. She looks good. Yeah. And she's really like, again, for everyone who kicked her when she was down, another one. Not going to do it. I stay friends with her and loyal to her throughout all that shit. And I really, again... I don't like mob mentality. I don't like beating up on the underdog and people who are in hard times beating the shit out of them. I don't like it. And by the way, I don't think America likes it either. Just so we're clear. All right, hey, Carl. Carl. No, we, you and I know the real world and not what social media is saying. So there, totally. there you go. You, but you and I always talk about that. It does not represent the real world. Please. Yes. All right. You can follow Carlos at the Carlos King on X and Instagram. You can f- listen to his podcast. You much bigger than mine called Reality with the King. Um, and you're the king of reality TV. And I uh, also the creator of Love and Marriage franchise and the Kingdom Reign Entertainment CEO. It's such a pleasure, Carlos. Come back anytime and I'll come on your podcast literally anytime you want. You call me. I'll do yes, it right now. No, I will. Thank you so much, Megan. I love, 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 love you. I love you too. Thank you. And with that, that is our show today. Thank you all so much for listening. It's a really exciting time in politics coming up in the next few weeks. I'm so excited to speak with you and talk with you and delve into everything. And uh, yeah, with that, I'm leaving the chat. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Megan McCain Has Entered the Chat, brought to you by Teton Ridge. I am your host and executive producer, Megan McCain. Additional executive producers are Miranda Wilkins, Eric Spiegelman, and Wynn Weigel. Our supervising producer is Olivia DiCopolis. Our senior guest producer is Kara Kaplan and associate producer Austin Goodman.